you guys have your Bibles with you tonight, I invite you to open up to First Chronicles, which I'm sure is quickly becoming one of your favorite books. You give it time, it might grow on you. We're going to pick it up in chapter 5. As we've been working our way through the challenge of First Chronicles is first nine chapters are, are genealogies. And I prayed about it, you know, because it would be a lot easier just to skip them. So we went through the first four chapters, <coughs> taking a look at the stories of the men and women that, that God kind of pops out in the middle of the genealogies. There's some neat things. But one of the things I want you to kind of have the mindset of, because uh, tonight we're going to go a little bit quicker through them. And... Um, Um, as we do here's what I want you to see as we work our way through we're looking at the genealogies the the history of the people who went into exile from the beginning of their time through family lines into the exile and then when we come uh, to chapter 9 we're going to see them come out and then when we come to chapter 10 which you may not believe we'll get to, but we, we, we probably will. We come to chapter 10, we're going to begin with the death of Saul. And then in chapter uh, 11, or middle of chapter 10 and, and, and chapter 11, the, the kingship of David. And you look at that, and here's what you understand. That Ezra, who is probably writing the book of Chronicles for us, don't forget who this book is written to. You were a child who were, was taken into slavery. You've been a slave your whole life. After 70 years, you raised your kids. You grew, had children, raised your own kids. Now you're an old man or an old woman and you've got a decree from Cyrus. And Cyrus says you can go back to the land. Go back. Well, he gives that decree to a fellow named Ezra. And Ezra said, I better write down what got us here. So maybe we'll learn from our mistakes. So he lays out their history through the genealogies. He lays out the history of of the children of Israel from the beginning all the way to the exile till they go in to being slaves. And then he writes genealogies as they come out. So everybody knows who comes out and where they settled, where they went in the land. And then he starts with Saul. The death of Saul. The rejection of Saul. And the chronicler, as he goes through the book of Chronicles, his focus is not so much necessarily the history of it all, as much as it is, why did this happen? Why did God reject Saul from being king? And the people coming out, I just want you to get this picture. The people coming out of of captivity and into the land have no king. They have no government. They have no rulership. They must feel a little bit lost in the world, like everything is upside down and where are we going to go from here? They would relate to how the children of Israel felt at the end of Saul. Remember when Saul ceased being king? There was a period of time. David was in Hebron, but... But it took a while for them to make David king. And they looked around with expectancy for God's deliverer. They looked around with expectancy for the man that God had raised up for that period of time. And God ushered in David. Now you have people coming out of captivity in a similar state. No king. Looking around, wondering, what was this all about? I was a kid. When I went, I don't understand what was going on in the nation. I don't know what was happening, who was worshiping what gods. I don't know all that stuff. All I know is now, 70 years later, I want to go back home. So Ezra lays it out for him, And he wants them to be looking for a king. But it's post-David. What king are they looking for? They are looking for what the Old Testament describes as the Mashiach Nagid. Messiah the Prince, the Messiah the King. That's who they're looking for. The Deliverer. 
That's what they're to have eyes for. So the chronicler is trying to show them what was your history. And then it's going to park on certain aspects. As we work our way through the genealogy, he parks on three particular families. Judah, which was like three chapters of genealogies in Judah. We're going to see the, uh, the, the, the genealogy of Levi. Pretty long, drawn out genealogy of Levi. And we're going to see a long genealogy of Benjamin. He picks out those three of the twelve. Why? Because those three made up the southern kingdom. It was called Judah. But two tribes were there in full. Judah and, and Benjamin and Levi would travel. The Bible tells, we'll see it in the book of Chronicles, as the kings of the north started getting more and more wicked, the people who wanted to serve the Lord, no matter what tribe they were on, they started moving south. The people in the south who were tired of serving the Lord, they started moving north. So you end up with representations of all tribes. But he focuses on those three. Judah, the tribe of the king, right? Judah is a lion's whelp. That's what Jacob said. That was a prophecy Jacob gave over his son. Judah, which means praise from the tribe of Judah. What famous person is going to come? We know Jesus is coming, huh? What, what else? The kingly line of David, right? David's line, lineage, comes through Judah. Well, what does Levi represent? Levi, who's Levi? Levi, that's the priestly line, right? That's the priestly line. That's uh, those who serve in the temple. That's those who are going to worship. And then you have Benjamin, which is a little bit of a mystery. Benjamin. See, Benjamin was well known for one thing. They were warriors. I don't mean they were decent. I mean, they, if you were picking teams at school, and there was some dude from Benjamin, you picked him. Remember, they picked a guy like that. He was their first king. You remember his name? Saul, right? I think a lot of times we read about Saul, and we think Saul was somehow weak. Saul's problem wasn't that he was weak. Saul's problem was he was too strong. Do you understand what I'm saying? The tribe of Benjamin, you remember Jonathan walking with his armor bearer and seeing the armies of the Philistines and saying, you know, God could deliver through many or few. Why don't you and me just go over there and let's see if the Lord will deliver the entire army into our hands. Normal people don't do that. Right? Now, Jonathan loved the Lord and certainly that is his strength. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that he came from a warrior tribe. A warrior tribe was the tribe of Benjamin. So he had all three aspects of the loyal to the throne and to the leadership of the Lord. Not, not all three of them families weren't perfect. They all three had issues. They were all dysfunctional. Don't start thinking your family's not going to measure up. Trust me, you'll measure up just fine. It doesn't matter how much your family tree is in a straight line or how many branches there might be you will be able to connect with some of the stories that we see working our way through the genealogy. So as we look at, at chapter 5, and as I said, we're going to go a little bit quicker, but in chapter 5, we've finished taking a look at Judah, and, uh, and we also, during that time as we were looking at Judah, we looked at uh, uh, Simeon. The reason is um, Simeon was absorbed by Judah. Simeon's... Um, what Simeon received in the, in the allotment of land fit inside of Judah. So he gets absorbed and, and becomes a part of it. A few of the tribe of Simeon move out, but for the most part, they're considered to be part of Judah. In chapter 5, it says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Now he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. The son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to birthright. And what's the point that he wants to make? He's telling us Reuben's the firstborn. But when Jacob prophesied over his sons, he knew about what Reuben had done. Reuben had slept with one of Jacob's wives. So remember I told you, it doesn't matter how dysfunctional your family is, there's a place where there are at least equal or more dysfunctional parts within the Bible. Reuben slept with Bilchah, a, a lesser wife. 
The Bible calls them concubines. I think sometimes we get a, a, a bad view of what a concubine is. A concubine is a wife who, who didn't have any rights. She was not paid a, a bride price for. Usually a concubine was a slave that was wed to the man, so he didn't have to pay anything for her. That was called a concubine, a lesser wife. The sons, however, still had right to anything uh, within the family. Well, Bilchah, uh, one of Jacob's lesser wives, Reuben, decided he was in love with and snuck off and slept with her. So it wasn't his mom, but one of his father's wives. So he had his birthright removed. He's no longer considered the firstborn. In fact, it tells us that the firstborn, that right was given to the sons of Joseph. You remember the sons of Joseph's name? Ephraim and Manasseh, two boys of Joseph. When we have the listing of the 12 tribes, uh, depending, if you, if you list them all, you're going to end up with more than 12. Especially if you list Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh. Because all three of those can account for one tribe. The point being, they were given the honor of being the firstborn. Yet, verse 2, yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. So though the birthright belonged to Joseph, Messiah comes through Judah. The kingly line comes through Judah. It doesn't come through Joseph. It doesn't, it doesn't go through that. So, so the, the chronicler laying out for them the concept. That, look, you don't, you're, not, you're not given some special thing just because you were the firstborn. Or because you were the one picked to take the place of the firstborn after he left. That it doesn't happen. You don't. You don't. You, the the grace of God is on whom the grace of God is upon, and so he's laying that out for us. And then he begins in verse three with the sons of Reuben, and he works his way through the sons of Reuben all the way to verse eleven. Do you see how quick that was? And in verse eleven, he's going to talk about the children of Gad, and then as we move over to verse twenty-three, he's going to talk about the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh. These three families are often linked together. Reuben, Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh. They are the ones who are going to be Transjordan, on the wrong side of the Jordan River together. They're going to be gathered in that place. It says now, as we look at these three families who are put together, it says in verse 20, it says that when they, they were helped... Um, they made war with the Hagarites, Jetur, Naphish, and Nodab. And they were helped against them, and the Hagarites were delivered into the hand, and all who were with them, for they cried out to God in the battle. And he heeded their prayer, because they put their trust in him. He says, listen, these guys had this great victory. The, the chronicler, remember the whole point of the chronicler is to tell these kids who are coming out of captivity... What the problem was, the reason they went into captivity, and how to be successful now that they're outside of, they're out of prison. They've been in prison 70 years. Somebody else told them what to think every day. Somebody else told them what to do every day. Now they're out loose, and the chronicler is saying, listen, let me tell you how God worked in these people's lives. And so he gives the snippets. He gives the snippets of Jabez. Remember the prayer of Jabez? And the, and the prayer that Jabez offered up and how he was, he was set apart from his brethren, even though everybody looked down on him like he was no good. Yet he, he was more righteous than all the others because he what? Prayed. Then you have these three families who, who were not necessarily the mightiest or the strongest of the twelve tribes, but they got this great victory. How did they get the great victory? Because they called on the name of the Lord and what? Little phrase, and they put their trust in him. How are you saved today? Is it a different way? You put your trust in Him. Literally, the, the word picture is to put your weight into something. That's the difference between belief and lip service. Lip service don't require you to put your back into nothing, right? You just say words. But to say... To do the deed, to put your weight into something, to believe, is to take all of who you are and place it into all of who He is. To give yourself away. They trusted in Him. God gave them this great, great victory. In verse 21 it says, And they took away livestock, 50,000 camels, 
250,000 of their sheep, 2,000 of their donkeys, and 100,000 of their men. For many fell dead because the war was God's. And they dwelt in their place until the captivity, until the exile. So he gives them this little snippet, this little victory, to tell them that victory came because they trusted in the Lord. The, the battle was the Lord's. God did the battle for them. That's why they won. It's all about the Lord. It's all about their relationship with him until they went into the captivity. And then he lays out for us the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now down in verse 25, he says, And they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers, and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, into captivity. And he took them to Halah, Habor, Harah, and the river of Gozan to this day. So he tells them, look, the guys, he's kind of talking about the, a, a little snippet to the, of the northern tribes. We're going to get into that a little bit later again. But he says, look, they did good and they had victory when they trusted in the Lord. But they turned their back on the Lord. They worshipped other gods. They focused on other things. That, that became their, the centrality of their life. And they went into captivity. So you see, the chronicler is telling the generations coming out, this is what happened. This is how it happened. You're coming out an old man, but you got an opportunity to set some things right. The Bible tells in the book of Nehemiah, around chapter 4, that the men are working, building the city of Jerusalem on their knees. On one hand, they have a trowel. On the other hand, they have a sword. And they can't even hardly get a brick set down in the wall before enemies are coming and they're having to fight. Well, that's how they built the city back. You need a little encouragement if that's the kind of situation you find yourself in. And that was the goal of the chronicler, to tell them, put your trust in the Lord and He will give you victory. You walk with Him. Stay, keep the Lord central Keep the Lord central. In chapter 6, we take a look at the Levites. And it's interesting because chapter 6 is just about dead center of the genealogies. Interesting because God is making a point. The point that God is making in having Levi central, and we see also in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, and some other genealogies, is simply this. That God is supposed to be central in everybody's life. He's the middle. When the children of Israel encamped, when they moved, when they were in the wilderness, how did they move? They only moved when the cloud led them, right? The pillar of fire of the cloud moved, they moved. And how would that occur? That, that cloud would start to move. As soon as that cloud started to move, all the sons of Levi would get up. Each one had a different role, a different job. And they'd go pick up whatever it was that they were to pick up. They'd take down the tabernacle. They'd line it up and they'd start to go. And as they started to move, the tribes that were encamped around them would follow in suit behind them. And off they would go following the Lord. When the Lord stopped, the Levites would stop, break camp, set up the tabernacle first. And then all the encampment would surround it. Why? Because the center of their life was the Lord. He was in the middle of everything. So the genealogy is in the middle of everything. Anytime we put the Lord and we put him out in the back somewhere, the back 40, that's where the Lord is, then we are not learning the lesson of those who have gone before us and the concept of having God central, central in the things we do, central in where we go, central in why we do what we do. What is our motivation? Is it just to make a buck? Is it just so you can have a bigger house, a nicer place, a full belly? What is our motivation in life? For the children of Israel, their motivation was central, built around worship of Almighty God. If ours is built around something else, it is faulty. It's going to falter. It's going to crumble. That's the point of making Levi central, to put him in the middle. He starts with the lines of the high priests in chapter 6, 1 through 15. You have a list of all the high priests in the tribe of Levi. 
You can work your way through that. You'll find several names in there that you'll know. And then we come to verse 16. You have all the families of Levi that had family members that were associated with the musicians. The musicians, these are a specific group that David is going to appoint. So you see their families listed out. Now in verse 31 it says, And these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. And then it's going to go through and list out the family names and the names that come through that. You have the Kohathites. That was one of the families. The second family you have is Asaph. That should sound familiar to you. Asaph is, is responsible for many of the Psalms. Many of the Psalms that we read are written by Asaph or the sons of Asaph. That was the musical family. The third musical family was the family of Merari. Merari, he's in verse 44. So they lay out for us. Here are the families and their musicians. Now why was this important? Because these guys all went into captivity. So if you were one of the guys coming out wondering... What do I do? Where do I fit? What's my part? And all of a sudden you hear, you read the book of Chronicles, you go, that's my uncle, he's one of the musicians. What does that tell you? Well, your your, your family line was, was in the musicians. That's probably the direction you want to be looking toward as you begin to set up house after the exile, as you rebuild the nation. So they'd come out and they'd have these things laid out for them so that they could... Understand, where do I fit? Where does all this go together? In verse 48, he gives the chief duties of the Levites and the priests. It says, And their brethren, the Levites, were appointed to every kind of service of the tabernacle of the house of God. But Aaron and his sons offered sacrifices on the altar, burnt offering, and on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place to make atonement for israel according to all that moses the servant of god had commanded and again he goes through and lists out for us uh, the the high priest and he comes down to verse 54 now he's going to list for us the places where they all settled the cities he's going to give a list of cities and those cities include the cities of refuge six cities of refuge for which the, uh, the one who was guilty could hide from the avenger of blood and receive mercy until uh, the death of the high priest and then he could be set free. So these are all those cities where they settled and what was going on and, and which cities uh, went to which families. All those would have been important to you as a person coming out and seeing, Lord, what is going on? What is happening in our world today. Now you see, we're already to chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins with some of the northern tribes. The northern tribes. Because he's got to talk about all of them. You see, the 12 tribes of Israel make up Israel. There's this little fantasy concept that floats around that says 10 tribes are lost. Well, that doesn't understand that Levi and Benjamin and Judah all made up the southern kingdom in just about in totality. So there wouldn't be ten, there would be nine. But beside the point, it doesn't take into consideration also that representatives of all those who wanted to live godly went south. Representatives of all those in the south that wanted to live ungodly went north. So you have a representative in each, both those who went to Assyria... Twelve tribes went to Assyria. Twelve tribes representative went into um, captivity at Babylon. So he lays out for us the northern tribes. We'll see him quick. First he begins with the sons of Issachar. He lays out the sons of Issachar. And he talks about the number of their mighty men. In chapter in verse 6 he talks about the sons of Benjamin. Now he's going to build on that in, ver, in chapter 8. We get to chapter 8 he's going to do a long section on Benjamin because he wants to really focus on those three tribes, Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. So he lays out uh, Benjamin. Then, verse 13, he lays out the sons of Naphtali. Uh, just side note on the sons of Benjamin in verse 11, it lays out for 17,200 mighty men of valor fit to go out for war and battle. The 
the emphasis again under Benjamin, the warriors in Benjamin. You have uh, similar things in Issachar, but the numbers for Benjamin, uh, we'll see in a little while, will always be a little bit more. Plus, Benjamin was well known for something special. They could fight with both hands. Scriptures tell us that the Benjamites could use a sling, right hand and left hand. They could, they, it wasn't just they worked one hand. They could do both. They were able to fight just as well, right hand and left hand. So uh, some of the things that uh, goes back, actually, if you want to read the, the prophecy of Jacob about Benjamin, you'll see that Benjamin kind of was destined from Jacob to be a, a warlike tribe. Uh, verse 13, you have the sons of Naphtali. Verse 14, you have the other part of the descendants of Manasseh. We already talked about the half-tribe of Manasseh, right? Half-tribe stayed on the other side of Jordan. Half-tribe came into the land, remember? They split up. There's the other part of the descendants of Manasseh. Um, We work our way down. Verse 20, you have the sons of Ephraim. And we work our way down from Ephraim. um, And you come to verse 30, in which you have the sons of Asher. So the listing of the sons of Asher. When you work your way through, if you look through this genealogy, two tribes are not mentioned. Two tribes aren't there. There's always a little something to be learned by the tribes that are absent. So sometime when you're sitting around thinking, I wonder which tribes aren't in here. Look, I could give it to you on a spoon, but it won't mean nothing to you. So if you want to know, figure it out. Two if, you, if somebody has the answer next week, I'll give you a brownie or something. Okay, so we have the tribe of Asher, verse 30. And then in chapter 8, we get a deeper look into Benjamin. And so we see, as we work our way through chapter 8, Benjamin's family listed out the genealogy of Benjamin, working our way all the way through chapter 8. One of the things that I, again, just want to continue to to uh, to kind of point out to you, over and over again, you see these phrases associated with Benjamin. Verse 40, the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers. They had many sons and grandsons, 150 in all. These were all the sons of Benjamin. As you work your way through, now remember who came from Benjamin. One of the tribe, the, the king, first king, comes from the tribe of Benjamin. His name's Saul, right? So we're going to see Saul. There's going to be another little hint as we work our way through chapter 9. And we see the genealogies of Saul, which lead us then into the story of the first king of Israel. So chapter 9, you have now caught up. Genealogies are done. You're now at the post-exile. These are the people who came out of the land. It says, so all Israel was recorded by genealogies, and indeed, they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Okay, remember the chroniclers trying to tell these guys who were children when they went in, here's what was the problem. Unfaithful to God. The word that's going to be used in the Hebrew all the time is ma'al. Ma'al means to break a covenant, to break your promise. It was a word used of a man who cheated on his wife. Same word is used here as unfaithful. Same word is used throughout the scripture when it talks about the children of Israel and, and their failure often to keep God, to keep the Lord central. To, they would wander. They, were, they would wander away serving other gods. It says... Verse 2, and the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possessions, in their cities, were Israelites, priests, Levites, and the Nethanim. So if you want to understand this, verse 2 is the first who returned. The first people who returned to the land. Seventy years is over. During that 70 years, we got Daniel, and we got Ezekiel, and we got many of the prophets uh, Habakkuk and others who have, have brought their prophecies concerning the, the eventual uh, king, their, their Messiah, whom they're looking for. As those things have all been laid out to them while they were in captivity, now they come out. So who? The Israelites. That group 
means the poor, the poor of Israel. It's not talking about any particular families. He's talking about the poor, the people who. If you were in, in if you were in uh, a Babylon at this time, really, you're in the Medo-Persian Empire, and you're in the Medo-Persian Empire, fairly wealthy empire in a fairly wealthy city. Why would you leave? What would make you go? If Ezra said, hey guys, we can go out and we can live in a land where everybody around us is constantly trying to kill us every day. Why would you go? Don't, don't tell me that you're, it's the adventure spirit. It's not the adventure spirit. The only reason the first group leaves, and there's not very many of them, because they're the poor. They don't like it in Babylon. They're unhappy there. They're unhappy with how things are and they want something more. They want an opportunity to get back to their roots. They want an opportunity to get back to making the Lord central in their life. And so that's what brings them back. That's why they would face the things they're going to face. So that's the group, the Israelites, the priests. Those are those who are concerned about the, the religious... Uh, offerings of the people and their relationship to Almighty God. And then the Levites. That includes the priests, but who else? That includes the musicians, that includes the temple servants, that includes everybody who's going to be a part. But that last group, the Nethanim, that's kind of a cool group. They're, they're not Jews. <laughs> uh, it, it comes to be synonymous with temple servants. There was a group of guys, you remember way back in the conquest, Joshua, they fooled Joshua. You remember? They fooled Joshua, and, and then Joshua figured out they were Canaanites, but he kept his promise that he made to them. Do you remember what they became? Servants where? They became servants doing the work of around the temple and the tabernacle. And then you have the children of Israel years and years and years and years later going to captivity that people group whether it still remained of that same uh, core group of people that had lied to Joshua or it got infiltrated with others becomes known as the Nethanim they're the temple servants the ones who do the dirty work of the temple they left Babylon to come out and rebuild a nation they left to come out it says now in Jerusalem the children of of Judah dwelt, and some of the children of Benjamin, and the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. So now he's starting to tell them, where did they go? Where did the ones who returned settle? So he begins to tell them. And he lays it out. He tells where did the returnees of Judah go? And then as he works his way, he tells us, uh, uh, Utai, the son of Aminachad, the son of Omri, the son of Imri, the son of Bani. I don't want you to miss the opportunity to have to do the names. The descendants of Perez, the son of Judah, of the Shilonites, Asiah, the firstborn, and his sons, the sons of Zerah, Jeuel, their brethren, 690, of the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshalam, the son of Hodaviah, the son of Hasunua. And Ibneah, the son of Jehoam, and Elah, the son of Uzi, the son of Michri, Meshalam, the son of Sephatiah, the son of Ruel, the son of Ibnijah, and their brethren according to their generations. 956. All these men were heads of their father's houses in their father's houses. He goes through from verse 10, lays out, those are the Israelites. So you have members of all different tribes. He just lays out the, the heads of the families. And then you have, uh, from verse 10 on, the priests. And the priests who came into the land. These are the ones coming out of exile. Verse 14, he lays out for you the Levites. And then in verse 17, he talks about the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers, probably pointing out to the, uh, to the Nethanim, or the gatekeepers were also a group as we'll see in a little while, that we're a part of the Levites. Uh, then he goes on and tells in verse 28, he lists, he lists out in verse 28 those who are in charge of the serving vessels. In verse 33, he lays out those who were the singers, the heads of the father's house of the Levites, who came. 
And uh, as he as he works his way through, then in verse thirty four, listen, he says, "These heads of the fathers of the houses of the Levites were the heads throughout their generations. They dwelt at Jerusalem." He's finished. He's going to give now the lineage of Saul from verse thirty five on, and we're going to start looking at Saul as king. But as he comes to this point, I feel like Ezra says, "Now you guys have all this history and all this understanding. Now let's try this again." God's bringing us back. God didn't take his hand off. He didn't let him go. He didn't throw him away. He allowed them to go through a time of captivity so that their hearts could be cleansed through the things that they went through. Because this is what we know as mankind. Mankind is purified in the furnace of affliction. If you think that's not true, we can talk about it later. You're crazy, though. When you call on the name of the Lord most, when things are great, when a bank account's full, when everything's going good, when life is just, you know, a, a bowl of cherries with a little bit of whipped cream on top, during those times, we, we tend to forget the Lord. When do we cry out on the Lord? In the furnace of affliction, something's wrong with our children, our kids are sick. Our family is going through hard times. Difficult things are going on. What's that cause us to do? Get back to our roots. Get back to where we were. So the Lord put them in that place. So that they would get back to their roots. So they would look and call on the name of the Lord. And that's what they did. So now they've got an opportunity. He says, now for you guys who are coming out, I'm going to give you a history lesson. I'm going to talk to you about Saul. Then I'm going to spend 19 chapters talking to you about David. Then I'm going to spend 9 more chapters talking to you about Solomon. And then we're going to focus on the southern kingdom and how they went into exile. And then that's going to lead us out of the exile and right into that fresh group coming in as we uh, head toward Ezra and Nehemiah. As we follow our, our, our way chronologically as we work our way through the Old Testament. So you have the family, the lineage of Saul. You'll notice Saul's name in verse 39. And Saul's sons. We know that Saul's sons, he had sons uh, who also had children. Uh, we do know that Jonathan had a son who survived, right? So um, we list out that line going all the way through. Now, <clears throat> chapter 10. We'll finally slow down. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gaboa. Why does he start like this? Well, that they understand. How do you think they feel coming out of Babylon? Do you think they feel like a vanquishing heroes? Or like a group of people that have just been whooped for 70 years? Just wiped out. So he starts with the the demolishing of Saul and his sons and the emptiness that the country felt then and how they were able to move forward under someone who was a man after God's own heart, after someone who was willing to make God central, how that leadership brought them into the golden age of Israel. The golden age of Israel is David and Solomon. That's the golden age. After that, so what was the point to be looking for? Looking for the son of David. At the time of Christ. Weren't they looking for the son of David? When Jesus asked the scribes and the Pharisees. So what say you? The son of David. How is it that, the, that his Lord calls him Lord? He, he, the people were aware of what the scripture taught about the son of David. Because that's what they're looking for. Why? Because Ezra was setting that foundation for them. As they're coming out of the land. And looking for the promise. So it says, Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, Saul's sons. You know, it's only by God's grace that David wasn't there. You remember what David was doing at this time? Yeah, he was hanging out with the Philistines. And as the Philistines were headed to this battle, they were in a big parade. You remember? They're in a big parade, and David and his mighty men come through. And David and his mighty men had been whooping the Philistines for a long time. Everybody knew who David was. Remember the song they sang about David and Saul? You remember? Saul has killed his thousands, but 
David his tens of thousands. So people knew who he was, right? Well, now he's with the Philistines. And as he's walking in his parade, he passes in front of the king. All the generals see him and they go, what is that dude doing here? We're not taking him to this battle. Because halfway through the battle, he may decide to fight us. So that was the end of David's time with the Philistines. The king told him to go away. David left. Word come to him that Jonathan had been killed. And so they were probably right. Because if he'd have been on that field of battle fighting with the Philistines, for the Philistines and knew Jonathan died, what would he have done? What did he do when the people came thinking that they would give him a reward when they told him about Saul and all his kids being dead? You remember? Mincemeat, something like that, right? So David, by the grace of God, was not here in this battle. But he is ready, primed. His time is, is come. One of the things I love about David, and I love about the concept that Ezra is laying out for us, is that David never had to promote himself. Do you hear that? He did not ever promote himself. When he was a teenager, he's anointed king. When he's a little bit older, he's the guy playing the harp for Saul, right? Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin, remember? Warrior guys. And so Saul, the tribe of Benjamin, sitting there one day, and he just gets mad at David, and what did he do? Chucked a spear at him, right? Who Saul, who was a, what? As a warrior, right? So he, it's not some lame dude who don't know how to throw a spear. He knows what he's doing with it. He flings that spear at David. What did David do? Now David had already, at this point, they were singing the song. So David, we know David could fight too, right? So David ducked out of the way of that spear, turned around, pulled it out of the wall, and stuck it in Saul, right? Took over? He didn't self-promote. He said, if God wants me to be king, God will make me king. I don't have to do nothing. And that's something David did his whole life. When Absalom rises up in rebellion against David and wants to take the throne by force, what does David do? He walks away. He just walks out of Jerusalem. Okay. If, if God wants me to, to, to have the throne, I'm not doing nothing until I know what God wants me to do. So Absalom wants it. Knock yourself out, brother. You think it's great to be king. Enjoy. <laughs> that was the kind of guy David was. He, he never self-promoted. He just waited for the Lord to do the work. Chapter 10 of First Chronicles is God doing the work. It says the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him and he was wounded. And Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised men come and abuse me. He's afraid of torture. He's afraid they're going to torture him. They've been fighting for his whole life. He knew the enemy. He doesn't want to be tortured by him. So apparently he's wounded bad enough that he can't really do a lot anymore. And But he's, he'll, he knows he's not going to die before somebody can get a hold of him. So it says, Saul told the, his armor bearer to kill him. But the armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all of his house, house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in the city. The dynasty of Saul has passed. And it happened on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So you're talking to this group of guys who've been slaves for 70 years. And you start the story at the bottom, not at the top. You start at the bottom where you can identify with, with, with the feelings that they feel and identify with where the nation was at the time. But the nation was in a low place, but God had someone for them, didn't he? Didn't God have a, a king for him? Didn't the Lord have a man after his own heart? Didn't God have arguably the greatest king that they ever had and ever would have? And in fact, 
every other king from this point forward is going to be judged according to the words, he was like David or he wasn't like David. He becomes the central post of all that, that the kings are supposed to be. God had someone for him. So the exiles come out, they read this, and what's the point of the story? God has someone to lead us. Somebody's going to come. God is not just leaving us out here orphans. God hasn't just let go of us. God's plan for us has not just been cast aside. He's going to bring somebody. That was the hope from Chronicles to the exiles. Even though every hero we've ever known is dead, and, and we're old men and young children coming out. Even though all of those things are true. I can look at this story and I can say, yeah, you know, things were bad back then too. But then God brought David. Then God delivered on his promises. It says in verse 9, And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head <coughs> in the temple of Dagon. But when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose. Jabesh Gilead, what, why do they care? Saul's dead. What, who's Jabesh Gilead? What are they all about? Well, if you want to know, you've got to go back to the left. 1 Samuel 11. It's a while back. 1 Samuel 11. I'll read you the story. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make peace with us, and we'll serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered and said, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that we can put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. So the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we'll come out to you. Jabesh Gilead's in a bad way. This mean king's going to wants to poke out all their eyes, all their right eyes, and make them slaves. And so they asked this guy, will you give us seven days? See if anybody will save us. But the person who saved them had a name. It was Saul. Jabesh Gilead was that first battle when Saul became king that he, he just came out in, in, in uh, a great way for the people. Look. It says, so the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news. And his anger was greatly aroused. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers. Remember I told you Benjamin was a gnarly warrior crew, right? So he cuts up all his oxen and sends them to the tribes. And says, if you don't go out to battle with me, I'm going to do this to you. It's amazing how many people decided that they wanted to fight with him. It says, And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And he numbered them in Bezek. The children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messenger, Thus you will say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. So Saul delivered the men of Jabesh-Gilead. That's the work that Saul did. So when Saul died, the men of Jabesh Gilead returned the favor. They hung the body of Saul and his kids on the walls of Bet-Shan. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you'll most likely have the opportunity to walk through the city of Bet-Shan, the, the ancient uh, city 
where the bodies of Saul were hung on the walls of the people. It says, So the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they buried them, uh, and they brought them to Jabesh, and they buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. It's kind of interesting because this is uh, probably one of the few places you can find cremation in the Bible. When Jabesh Gilead brought back the Saul and his sons, the Bible tells us they burned them in the fire and they buried their bones. They didn't want to bury them and have to defend some burial place where people wanted to come and tear out the bodies or put it up on something else. They just burned them, took the bones, buried the bones. They accelerated the normal process of decay and still were able to have the ossuaries for the Jewish families for the family of Saul. So um, that's what they did. And they fasted seven days. They held the traditional uh, funeral period of time. And then the chronicler tells us why. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned his kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So he tells us what's going on, why the things are happening. Now as we look at this, and I I don't want to take away from what the scriptures are laying out. But the idea is pretty simple. The concept is that Saul made a lot of choices in his life. Some of those choices led to men who were willing to go tear his body off a wall... And bring them to a burial place. Other choices led to consequences that would cost him his life. Anytime God says, I have rejected you from being king. And he takes the Holy Spirit away from you. And you don't know that the Holy Spirit is not with you anymore. That's a bad day. Would you agree? Now, thankfully, Jesus made a promise to believers. He said, I won't leave you orphan. I'll give you the Holy Spirit and he will be with you how long? Until you sin? Until you mess up? forever right so the holy spirit is with the believer forever it was not so in the old testament when samson was filled with the holy spirit he could do incredible feats right he was a strong guy he could pick up things move things kill three thousand soldiers with a with a jawbone of an ass so he had these incredible feats that he was able to do but the scripture at the end of samson's life when he's arrested it says The Holy Spirit left him, and he did not know he was gone. And he woke up and thought he could whoop the Philistines again. And he finds himself in bondage. Saul was the same story. The Holy Spirit was taken away from him. Why was the Holy Spirit taken away? He was disobedient. He would not walk in the ways that that the Lord had laid out for him. He wouldn't walk. Oh yeah, he, he made all these sins. You know God wants one thing from you? Do you know that? He just wants one thing. And it's it's actually even simpler than than our obedience. God wants one thing. And the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's it. What's God want from you? He wants you to love Him. Do you know that love always does more than the law requires? Obedience happens pretty easy when you're loving If I love my neighbor, I won't steal from him. If I love my neighbor, I won't covet after his wife. If I love the Lord, I won't serve another God. Will I? If I love the Lord, all those other things happen. Look, Saul's problem was he didn't love the Lord. Let's make it simple. He didn't love the Lord. God would say, Saul, go do this thing. And he would not do it. He didn't care about the Lord. He trusted in his 
own ability. And sooner or later, trusting in his own ability, got him in a fight. He couldn't win. You ever heard of that happening? When I was uh, just out of high school, I had a friend. He was a pretty good fighter. He used to tell me this all the time. Because you know when you're growing up and you're a guy. so You, you always talk about if you can fight, if you're a good fighter, or who's a better fighter, or whether or not you can take this guy or that guy. And this dude would tell me. He used to tell me all the time. If you're ever sitting down and you're talking with a guy and he tells you he ain't never lost, you call him a liar right there on the spot. If he ain't never lost, he ain't never fought. This dude fight anybody all the time. His little sister, she was, she was uh, uh, kind of a, a neat gal. We all worked in the, in the same factory together. and She was a neat gal and... And I really liked this guy. I really liked him. Kind of looked up to him because, you know, he was like the, the baddest dude I knew ever. <laughs> he, was, he was good. I did never, not ever wanted to fight him. I just wanted to say, I, I'm with him, so go away. <clears throat> so this guy, you know, and, 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 and he had all this trust in his strength and his ability and all the stuff he could do. And one day I come to work and he's not there and his sister's not there and couple days later, I, I don't know what's going on, haven't heard nothing, and a couple days later, his sister comes to work, but he still ain't, in, ain't to work, and, and then while she's working on the factory, she just passes out in the middle of the factory, and everybody had to shut down all the machines and run over, and that's when they told me, uh, don't matter how good a fighter you are, if the other guy's got a 45, you're going to lose, we got shot in the chest twice. And they let him bleed out in a driveway. His claim to fame was he was a tough dude. Where'd that road take him? The scripture says and the history says that that, that last section in, in verse 10, he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him. That's just matter of fact. Ultimately, God is sovereign of all. But here's what I would add. That Saul killed himself by the choices he made. Running away from the Lord. But not wanting to love God. But wanting to live for himself. By wanting to live in opposition to God. And when we live in opposition to God, the road you're on only ends one place. You get it? It only ends one place. That's it. So the, the exiles coming out of this land are faced with this, this thing. Remember Saul? Maybe they thought, some of them thought when they come out, man, we'll just go, we'll take back what's ours. Remember Saul? Saul was a good fighter. He come from them Benjamites. You know, they could hit you with stones from both hands. He came from them, but because his heart wasn't, didn't belong to God, he failed. But there's another king, David, man after God's own heart. He was just a man like you or I. In fact, he sinned every bit as much as Saul, didn't he? But, but he kept God central because if you go to the Lord and you ask the Lord for forgiveness what's he give you forgiveness right so they're they're being contrasted these two paths just like in the Old Testament when they put the priests on Mount Geboa and Mount whatever I can't Gerizim and they set them up there and they shouted the blessings and the curses if you obey me, blessings, this is the road, life. If you disobey me, cursings, this is the road, death. I have set before you, Israel, two paths. God said, if you choose the wrong one, I'm going to kill you. Nope, what did he say? Choose life. You get to pick. Saul got to pick who he was. You get to pick who you are. And if the road you're on ain't getting you where you want to be. Take a sharp right or left. Get off it. What do you want to be on that road for? 
you know what's at the end. Make the Lord central, middle. Keep him there. Like David, and you'll see your golden age. The golden age of who you can be and what you can accomplish in the Lord. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for an opportunity, Lord, just to, to come before you, Lord.